A lesser man would have been broken. Louis Zamperini was already a national hero as an Olympic athlete, but then his bomber went down in World War II in the Pacific, leaving him adrift for 47 days. Sharks, exposure, starvation, and then being rescued only to face relentless torture as a prisoner of war by Japan. Hi, I'm Charles Morris, and you're listening to The Great Stories Podcast. Today, we're returning to the interview I did with the late Louis Zamperini after he turned 90 at his home in the Hollywood Hills. He's now with Jesus, but his powerful story is still nothing less than awesome or awe-striking. You might remember it from the best-selling book, Unbroken, and a handful of movies about his fascinating life. And yet the most significant part of Louis' story didn't take place in World War II. It happened after he came home, more broken than he ever realized, more in need of a savior than he could have ever known. Now I know this fascinating conversation will put you on the edge of your seat. So now I want you to meet Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini, welcome to Haven Ministries, Haven of Rest. Can you share your story with us? You were born and raised not too far from here. Well, actually, I was born in Olean, New York, and my brother was just four years old. I was two years old, and we both had double pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And the doctor said, get your kids to California immediately, or they could die. So my dad and mother got on the train the next morning, and... Uh, well, a week later, we're living in Long Beach. You were Italian. Italian. You didn't speak any English either, did right. you? Right. That, that was my big problem in school. So the kids would tease me to get me to swear in Italian. And uh, I think I'm the only kid, <laughs> uh, the only kid I know of that had to cheat to get out of kindergarten. Because I couldn't speak English. The teacher come over and tell me to do something and hand me something. I'd smile. And she'd walk over to other kids. I got away with it until I got in the first grade, and then they realized I couldn't speak English, and they put me back in a kindergarten mm. and told my folks, you got to speak English at home. I learned a hard kind of English from my dad. For instance, golfers who's playing golf, they were called gophers. So I had all these words. <laughs> so I had a hard time, you know, in the first 10 years of my life. Mm. What was your family life like? Well, they were good stock, hardworking people, and uh, they loved their family. Mm-hmm. They were they made sacrifices to keep us in food and clothing during the Depression. Brokaw calls it the greatest generation, but I like the term hardy because hardiness is that you can explain. We were hardy. We overcame. And every time you overcame an adversity, you became more hardy. Mm. And you just growing more and more hardy. And that came in handy during the war. <laughs> right, right. In the book, uh, Unbroken, you're described as a as a juvenile delinquent, as a young boy. Yeah, well, to shorten the phrase, I was a rotten kid, second to none. <laughs> <laughs> Explain to our listeners, how were you a rotten kid? Well, I, I was always in trouble. That was during Prohibition, and I used to, I had things all worked out in my mind during the week. Uh, on Saturday, everybody went to the movie for a dime. We knew who made the beer. We knew who made the wine and the liquor. Mm-hmm. And then I would get my gang together, three of us, and we would break in and steal all the liquor. And then we'd go to the beach, 
and uh, lay on the beach and drink. But in those days, the lifeguard was like a policeman, mm. and they caught us. So then I got a job at the dairy. So I took a milk bottle, and I filled it full of white paint, poured the paint back in the can, and left the bottle upside down all night long. And then uh, for three or four days, left it out in the sun to dry. Mm -hmm. So then when we went to the beach, we'd fill the milk bottle full of beer or wine and then lay on the beach. And of course, the lifeguards thought, well, those guys are reformed. They're drinking milk. <laughs> oh, we, had, we had all kinds of angles going. But the police still knew you in Torrance, didn't they? That, uh, that yeah, Zamperini kid. I think when anything happened, they, all they did, they chased me and I got away from them. But then when I got home, they were parked in front of my house. So they, they probably figured 90% of the crimes were committed by me and my buddies. But then again, uh, my brother took me in tow and said, we've got to change your life. You have to get an interest in life. I have no interest except gang-related. Uh, this was and, your older brother. Yeah, he's two years older. And what a great guy. And, and now with the Lord. Too. Yeah, well, the police chief had my brother bring me to the police station. He wanted to show me two guys that were locked up. Mm. And he said, Louis, someday you're going to lose the greatest and most precious thing in your life, freedom. You're going to end up behind bars like these guys. Well, that shook me up. And then my brother said, we got to get him out for sports. And the chief said, well, may I suggest running? We've been chasing them all over town for a long time. <laughs> so then I had to make a decision. And this is funny because the decision was... Sharp as a razor. I just lay in bed, and my brother kept saying, well, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. I said, okay, Pete, I'm going to go all out. I'm going to quit this life, and I want to step into your life as an athlete. And I became just as fanatic in training as I had been in dissipating. But, boy, I was really strict with myself, and I wouldn't touch anything that would be damaging to my career, not even a candy bar, uh, very strict. And so I began to train. And uh, I lost the first race, and my brother was uh, going to college. And he said, I said, well, I got to beat that guy. He said, well, I'll tell you what. You go over and look through the fence, mark down on a piece of paper everything he does for training, then you go back to Torrance and double it. Mm. Well, that was good. <laughs> good advice. I, I watched that for a couple of weeks, and I was able to beat the guy. Well, so after that, I just, uh, and then recognition, that was a big thing, because when I ran, I didn't, I didn't think anybody in school knew me. Mm. But uh, when I came down the home stretch and passed this guy, the students were screaming, come on, Louie. Well, I thought, God, that was the greatest thing that That's ever me happened. they're talking about. Oh, I couldn't believe it. So recognition is important for young guys and young girls. And so after that, the recognition uh, and I started getting respect from the students. I uh, was the first one in my school to get in the All-City Finals. And this is high school. You're yeah. in high school at this point. Yeah, I'm a freshman. That summer, you were running on an Indian reservation. Yeah, 6,000 feet. There's only two of us living there in a big area. But I trained all summer. I didn't really train. I just did what I wanted to do, running here and there. And I came down from the mountains, entered the cross-country race at UCLA, the, the state cross-country. And uh, there were 101 runners, Class A, Class B, and Class C. I'm Class C. I'm a, I'm a, a, I'm a sophomore. Mm -hmm. And I was afraid I'd come in last. My brother said, get out there and run and just think about the finish. So the race started, and I can't remember my feet touching the ground. I was in mm -hmm. such great shape. This is the greatest race of my life. People said, was the Olympics the greatest? No, no. I'm a C. 
And I came in a quarter of a mile ahead of the A runner and broke all three records, A, B, and C. And so as a, as a sophomore in high school, I ran a 9.57 two-mile. Wow. And so that was the greatest race of my life. And then after that, I never lost another mile race for five years. And is that when people started saying, he's going to go to the Olympics? Right. So then, then my brother really set out and gave me a program of training. And uh, he was a great brother and a great coach. He coached for like 40 years. That's what he did for his life yeah. after the war, yes. So he got me in shape, and then the Olympics came, but I was still a high school kid. And what what year are we when the we're Olympics 1936 came? 1936 now. 36, World but, War II had not yet started. No, right. So my biggest effort would have been 1940, because I'm too young for the Olympics. But you still got there? Well, by switching races, I... A runner was coming out here from up north who was the second best 5,000 meter runner. Mm-hmm. Well, in those days, they didn't like kids to run that far. Mm. But my brother said, Well, I want you just to get in the race and see how close you can get to this guy because he's going to make the Olympics. Mm. I got in the race, and the last two laps, I said, I can't believe it. I'm right behind him. So I passed him, <laughs> made him mad. And he passed me, I passed him. <laughs> the sports guy says it was the greatest race they'd seen in Southern California because mm-hmm. we were battling each other for the lead. Sure. And then down the whole stretch, I got about 15 yards ahead of him, but we were running against a fellow from San Pedro that we were lapping, and the officials forgot to tell him to go off the track till the last minute, mm-hmm. and they motioned him off towards me as I was trying to pass him. We collided, and I hit the ground. Now my opponent is heading for the tape. I jumped up on my feet, and I caught him at the tape. But he beat me maybe an inch. Wow. So then I knew I could beat him. So then on the strength of that, I got a, an invitation to New York and uh, for the Olympic tryouts. And there I, ha- I tied uh, the world's record holder for the two-mile mm. uh, to make the team. And that was uh, another great thrill of my life. Everybody was proud of you. Now, Louie, you did go to the Olympics as a very young man in 1936. And the Olympics was in Berlin. Uh, the war hadn't started. Tell us about that. Uh, Germany itself was the most sanitary place I'd ever seen in my life. Mm. Of course, Hitler had everything uh, his way, but we also noticed that the entire nation was military, even the Boy Scouts. Mm-hmm. And so we knew he was up to something. Maybe he's going to take us and uh, take another country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had no idea he was going to try for well, well, world conquest. And uh, but anyway, I got to run my. 5,000 meters, but on the boat going across the Atlantic, uh, I'd never seen so much food in my life. And just during the Depression, so you can imagine, mm-hmm. my heart beat fast, my mouth opened up big. You started eating. I ate, I gained 14 pounds across the Atlantic, and I couldn't lose it in time for the race. So I'm way behind, but the last lap, my brother always taught me. When you come to the last lap, everybody's tired, uh, but you got to go all out. He says, isn't one minute of pain worth a lifetime of glory? And so I spent the whole last lap in 56 seconds, which made the papers. I came in eighth, but it was the last lap that drew people to their feet, gaining 50 yards. And so as a result of that, uh, Hitler sent for me, so I got to meet Hitler. And all he said was, the boy was a fast finish. Wow. So you shook hands with Adolf yeah, Hitler. I, I, yeah, we touched hands, and, and that was it. Mm. No big deal. I mean, we thought of him as a comedian, 
mm. with his mustache and the way his hair and his mannerisms. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we all felt that he was what you call a dangerous comedian. Mm. Mm. And, of course, at that time, everybody said, Louis Zamperini, next Olympics, Finland, 1940, you were going to take the gold. Mm. But other things happened in the world caused by Herr Hitler. Well, yeah, with the, we were all primed for the 40 Olympics. I uh, got in the best shape of my life. Then the word came that Pearl Harbor had been attacked and mm -hmm. something we couldn't believe. We forgot about being Olympians and wanted to get in the war and get it over with as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So I ended up as a bombardier and a B-24 bomber operating out of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And our job was to take lengthy search missions to make sure the German fleet wasn't coming in and look for Germans, I mean, the Japanese and Japanese submarines. And then we had uh, the first raid on Wake Island at the longest raid of the war, round trip from Midway. And then we were sent way down near Australia, uh, the Ellis Islands, and a little island called Funafuti. And from there, we were to bomb the famous uh, phosphate island called Nauru. Mm -hmm. And the Japanese, of course, needed phosphate for both fertilizer and, and, uh, bombs. and bombs. Yes. And uh, so 26 bombers flew over and we flattened that place, but we had three zeros that attacked us alone for several minutes. And they came in so close, they couldn't miss us. And they came in so close, we couldn't miss them. We shot down all three zeros. However, before we did that, we had a front turret knocked out. We had a bullet in the right, a left tire under the wing. Uh, we had uh, the radio shack had a hole bigger than my head. Uh, so there were five big cannon holes in the ship. You were headed down into the Pacific. Well, it's, it's, it's a long, long story. It would take a week to tell it. But yeah, I was bent over one of the injured men. Well, he was gargling something. He was trying to say something, but he was almost dead. I bent over to listen to what he was saying, and a 20-millimeter came through the radio shack, and the, and the shrapnel went over my head and hit the upper turret gunner in the foot, tore half his foot off. Mm. But if I hadn't bent over at that moment, it would have taken my head off. Yes. And so that was one of several narrow escapes on the plane. But uh, here we had just under 600 bullet holes, five cannon holes, the right tail shot off, the left tire flattened, hydraulic unit out, and we didn't know what to do. We, we knew we <laughs> couldn't get back to base. Right. But we were told that there would be a submarine 20 miles off of the ocean and to land there and they'd pick us up. But we were way beyond that. We were about 40 miles or 50 miles beyond the submarine. So then, because all four motors were, were purring really nice, we decided to take a chance and, and fly back to Funafuti and make a crash landing, which we did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm getting my flights mixed up, but that was a very close call. But then a little later, you're flying again, and you didn't make it. Well, yeah, we, we, our plane was totally, couldn't fix it. I, I, and the general said, I'd never seen a bomber come back from a mission that shot up and land. And still made it uh, back. Yeah, but the plane was totaled and our crew was gone, so we had to go back to Hawaii. And we were assigned a new ship, and then we were assigned a new crew from the States, a green crew. When you come in from a mission, you get a couple of days off. Mm -hmm. So we were heading for Honolulu. We got to the main gate, and the operations officer came out and said, 
like, we need you to fly towards Palomar Island. We got a report that a B-25 crashed at sea. And uh, you're to go look for them. So they sent two bombers. But our plane was being serviced, so we had to take a plane that was a, a lemon. Nobody could fly it. It wouldn't fly in combat. Uh, what we used it for was to fly to Hilo to pick up lettuce and vegetables <laughs> and steaks. And even then, we were lucky to get back to Honolulu. And they wanted you flying too many miles. But he said, well, it's past inspection. I think he lied to us. Mm. And so we took it, and we got about 200 miles north of uh, Palmyra, where the B-25 had crashed. Mm -hmm. And we started flying in circles, scanning the water. And number one motor went out. And that plane wouldn't land on four motors. With one mm. out, it started mm. to drop. Mm. And then number two went out, and then we, we went down at, at an angle, hit the water at full speed. The plane blew up into pieces, and uh, there were 11 of us aboard. Three of us survived the crash. Mm -hmm. I got in a life raft and uh, started our drift. Mm. The, mm. Next, the next 47 days on the ocean. And uh, you and two others made it alive at the beginning. At the beginning, yeah, the tail gunner was a mess to begin with. He was physically unfit for a situation like this, and uh, he was a heavy drinker, smoker, and he'd come into the mess hall and say, well, what's for dessert? Well, if there was pie, he'd have three pieces, a couple of cups of coffee, and that was dinner. Mm. And so uh, on the raft, he did panic the first half hour. He ate your chocolate. Oh, he, and he ate up all the chocolate during the night. I couldn't believe this and, guy. And chocolate was one of those things that they put in all... Fortified. To fortify you, yes. As big as the end of your little finger, and you're supposed to hold it in your mouth for a half hour to get all the... Highly concentrated, and he ate enough for, for six guys for a week. Mm. And I thought he was going to die, but didn't bother him. So the next morning, you're waking mm. up, you're mm. on the high seas of the Pacific. There's no food. No food, and so then he panicked and starts screaming, we're going to die, we're all going to die, his exact words. And I tried to settle him down with psychology. It didn't work. I threatened to make a report on him when we got rescued. That didn't work, so I had to crack him across the face. I knocked him on his fanny, and he lay there in complete contentment. That's what he needed. It was like medicine for him. Mm. <laughs> and they call that applied psychology. <laughs> About five days later, he panicked again. And I had to crack him again, and I felt, well, this guy is going to start hallucinating. But I started a program of mental exercises every day. Mm. And uh, you see, we just left a world of confusion, a chaotic world. Yes. We're in a new world now. we got to learn to adjust to the new world. So no more of this bad news condemnation on the radio. Right. We fed our brains. Well, we want to feed our brains. Mm. So we memorized teaching us other words to songs, uh, planning for the future, how about your past, and so every day we had exercise, and he kept improving mm. instead of getting worse. At the end of 33 days, he died, and uh, he was sharper than any time in his life. Mm. So we're on a raft like that. There's no reason for anybody hallucinating if you keep your mind active and have a, a positive attitude and a lot of humor. Then we were spotted by a Japanese bomber and the bomber strafed us with two machine guns for a half hour. It's unbelievable, but we were tangled up together at to begin with, and the bullets would miss our groin by an eighth of an inch, mm. armpit, 
48 holes in the space that we were in and nobody touched by a bullet. Mm. And the sharks swimming all well, around this, you. Yeah, this was a miracle of miracles. And then there were sharks in the water. But So I decided to get under the raft after the first two strafings and push my head as far below the surface as I could. And I could see the bullets coming through. When I came up, I knew the other two were mm-hmm. dead because too mm-hmm. many bullets came through the raft. Mm. Oh, they weren't touched. They were still alive. Every time I came up, I knew they were hit and they weren't touched. Mm-hmm. And this is a, the greatest miracle I've ever seen. Mm. And at the same time, your friend, when uh, you're on this raft for 47 days, your friend, the pilot, he would pray. Well, we all prayed. That's all we did. You know, like, like Billy Graham says, when man comes to the end of his rope and there's nowhere else to turn, he turns to God. Mm. So that was, that was what we did. We prayed. And then we had trouble with sharks, but it would take two hours to explain that. Sure. And then uh, we buried Mac at sea. Uh, we'd gone seven days without water. Sixth night, we did pray for water for the first time. Because mm-hmm. we thought we'd get water. When we prayed for water the next day, in the afternoon, yes, we got water for the first time in seven days. We knew what, what, that we were drifting towards the Marshall or Gilbert Islands mm-hmm. because when the plane strafed us, they could only spend a half hour over the target and they had to return. So figuring the speed of the plane, the time they took off and then a half hour to kill over the target, mm-hmm. we estimated how far land was. Mm-hmm. And I picked the 47th day, which was right, and the pilot picked the 46th day. Mm-hmm. So that uh, turned our hope into faith. Mm-hmm. Now hope must have a reason, but faith must have an object. Mm-hmm. The object was that plane and we had it all figured out and then we were picked up by the Japanese and taken to the island of Kwajalein. We couldn't stand up or walk for four days. And this is called Execution Island. Mm. And uh, I found names on the wall of my cell that said nine Marines marooned on Macon Island, August, 12th, 19, August 18th, 1942. A famous raid. Mm. But nine Marines were left there, transferred to Kwajalein for execution. Mm-hmm. So that's why we call it Execution, execution they, Island. Execute everybody that comes there. So... Our date of execution was set. Mm. But we were able to, by a panel of six naval officers, we were able to defeat them. That's how sharp we were. Mm. Uh, so there's no reason for anybody to hallucinate after 47 days on a raft if you keep your mind activated mm-hmm. and you get enough food to just survive. Mm-hmm. Now, we didn't get enough to be able to stand up. Mm. We had to be carried for four days. In that cell on Kwajalein, we were injected three times for experiments. Mm. And then we had visitors, submarines, uh, would come in with 80 men. They would line up, uh, come to the opening in your cell and spit at you, curse you, throw rocks at you, jab you with sticks. Mm -hmm. And that happened twice. Mm. That's 160 (laughs) people. And finally, some officer came from another division he followed sports, and he followed SC sports. Of USC, course, where you yeah, went to school. But they knew who I was when they picked me up because they, we had big headlines in America uh, announcing that I was missing an action. But they were shocked that it was me because, you know, 47 days later, uh, this officer came and suggested it would better serve Japan's purpose to send me on to Tokyo to make propaganda broadcast. Mm-hmm. So that saved our lives. But when I got there, I refused to make the broadcast, and so I was punished on a daily basis, uh, hoping I would give in and make the broadcast, but I never did. And that's what the book was all about, Unbroken. 
Hmm. I couldn't live with myself the rest of my life if I had yes. even spoken one word of disfavor against my country. Uh, now, th- this is going to be hard, and I, and I know it would take two hours, but can you just tell us a little bit about the man who almost broke you, the bird? He was notorious for being a, a, a psychopath. Mm-hmm. Uh, he seemed perfectly normal, but he resented officers because out of his family became officers, but him, he flunked. And so he hated officers. And then I think he was given orders to work on me to break me down. So when I was offered a better life, like Radio Tokyo, a hotel room, a cafeteria, stainless steel American food, I met two Australians and an American who were making broadcast, and I was showing those rooms and all that, which was a, no temptation to me. I'd rather be with my buddies sleeping on wood in a with prison buzz camp. all over me at night. Just, sure. I mean, you wake up in the morning, you got a thousand bites all over your body. But when they shook my hand, they looked down at the floor. They couldn't look in my eyes. And that sent me a message, you know, mm-hmm. boy, mm-hmm. no way I could ever do that. So then I was sent to a slave labor camp, and I was there till the end of the war. And my life was threatened there because the same rotten guard, Mr. Shiro Watanabe, was also transferred there before me mm-hmm. because they knew I hated his guts. And they just, that was their way of getting even. And so I had to tolerate him till the war's end. Mm. And they threatened to kill me twice. But uh, I lived through it. He left two days before we knew the war was over and escaped into the hills and lived there for eight years until amnesty was signed. Then he came out a free man. Mm. Mm. How long were you in uh, prison camps, Japanese prison camps? Well, at the time I left home, I was two and a half years. I'd say over just over two years. Mm. Mm. The war's over. It took a toll on you. But you come back to Los Angeles. Uh, you met your wife there. I met my wife. Yeah, they sent us on a rest cure to Miami uh, Air Force. And that's where I met my wife. And uh, within six months, we were married and uh, had one child. And yeah, I had my second child about the same time. And Billy Graham came to town. and This was uh, the and, original... Billy Graham crusade that launched his career. But can you tell me one little story in there, though? The the war would affect you. You were still affected, and you would have these nightmares in the middle of the night, and you were married, and, and uh, it got ugly sometimes, didn't it? Well, the nightmares started in prison because when you're tortured like that on a daily basis, yeah, I had nightmares. I'm always strangling the, the bird. He said, if I draw my sword, I must use it. So if I'd have hit him, he'd have sliced me up. Mm. So the nightmares were there. They followed me home every night. And then my wife um, went to hear Billy Graham. And uh, it took her two days to convince me I should go. And then that's when Billy Graham, uh, I said, well, when it says every head bowed and every eye closed, we're out of there. I started out. And then he said something in his message about, when people come to the end of the rope, nowhere else to turn, they turn to God. I thought, that's what I did. You thought, I already did that on the raft. That's what I thought. I said, made thousands of promises all through prison, and that if I came home alive, I'd seek God and serve him, and I didn't. So that's what convinced me to go back to the prayer room to see what was in store for me. Mm. And this fellow got me on my knees and started praying for me. And I made my decision for Christ. And while I was still on my knees, I knew it was all over. Mm-hmm. Through drinking, 
I'd forgiven all my guards, including the bird. Believe me, that was a miracle. And uh, so I had a whole new life now. Mm. Mm. And you didn't even know at that point your life would change so much, your future career, and you served the Lord the rest of your life for decades. Exactly. Uh, Well, the first miracle was my conversion. The second miracle was I haven't had a nightmare ever since. Mm. I didn't have to taper off on anything. It was like a razor cut. Mm. I went from one life to the other life in one second when I said, I believe. Mm. After that, never had another nightmare. Well, that was unbelievable. When I read uh, Laura's book, Unbroken, it was so graphic, I thought I was going to have nightmares because it put me back in prison. Mm. But I haven't had one, Mm. and I doubt if I'll ever have one again. I I doubt it, too. Mr. Zamperini, you're in your 90s now. You're still going strong. Do you have some advice for people today? Well, first of all, to live a long, long life, there's a number of things involved in it. You got to eat proper food. Uh, don't be a boozer. But <laughs> the main thing God gave us was to have a cheerful attitude at all times. Mm-hmm. And when you're cheerful at all times, you're getting an influx of white corpuscles in your immune system. Mm-hmm. Or when you do good. And that's why the Lord said, when you give, give cheerfully, mm. and you get white corpuscles. Now, if you give begrudgingly, like the Bible says, forget the white corpuscles. Oh, they, you know, they won't grow. No, no. <laughs> what, what does Jesus mean to you today? Well, how can I say it? Jesus is all in all. Mm. Louis Zamperini, would you mind praying for our listeners? And, and some may not even know Jesus as Savior. Would, would you lead us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that You were in Christ, reconciling man unto Yourself. For Yourself of the world You gave Your only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then the Scriptures tell us that if Thou shalt confess with Thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in Thine heart that God raised Him from the dead, Thou shalt be saved. And so my prayer is, Lord, that both young and old alike, when they hear this message, that they would commit their hearts to Jesus and become part of the heavenly family. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You were on the Haven of Rest years ago, so thank you for coming back on the program 40, 50 years later. Well, it's been a long time since Haven of Rest, and I was closely associated with every Christian function of those days, and Haven Arrest was one of the greatest. Mm. God bless you. Thanks for joining me on Great Stories with Charles Morris. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Louis Zamperini. It's one of my favorites from through the years as my assistant and I sat with him at his home and Hollywood, the Hollywood Hills, actually, I was struck with the fact that I was talking with a man who lived through history. Even more, a man who should have been broken, but was made new in Christ. Truly, a most inspiring story. Now, if you want to hear more stories of grace from World War II, visit haventoday.org, where you will find the book called War and Grace, which highlights several other fascinating stories of grace from the Second World War, also the First World War. And if you like what you've heard, can I also ask that you leave a review? 
You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, but you can also go to haventoday.org to sign up for our weekly email and discover our other episodes posted on our blog. Thank you for joining me once again on Great Stories with Charles Morris. Thank you.